You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine biblical anthropology. Last time we started to discuss sin, which is the most important aspect of human nature since the fall. We noted that there are three main components to the doctrine of sin, its cause, its nature, and its definition. We then noted that even though the original creation was entirely good, Satan sinned and then successfully tempted Adam and Eve to sin as well. And we then stated the biblical doctrine of original sin, which is that Adam's sin caused him to have a sinful nature and that everyone who is descended from him by the ordinary means of reproduction inherits this sinful nature. Dr. Spencer, it's often argued that it's unfair of God to allow Adam's sin to affect anyone other than Adam himself. How would you respond to that charge? Well, there are a number of things that can be said in response to that charge. James Boyce correctly claims in his Foundations of the Christian Faith that, quote, The fact that Adam was made a representative of the race is proof of God's grace. Now, how is that fact proof of God's grace? Well, first of all, Boyce points out that Adam knew he was representing all of his descendants. And as any father or mother knows, we're far more careful when the welfare of our children is at stake than we are if it's only our own welfare that's at stake. Boyce says, quote, What could be better calculated to bring forth an exalted sense of responsibility and obedience in Adam than the knowledge that what he would do in regard to God's commandment would affect untold billions of his descendants? That's a good point, although I don't know that Adam was thinking about quote-unquote untold billions of his descendants. It seems far more likely that he would think about his own children, and even they weren't born as of yet. I agree, but Boyce's point is still good. And it has also been pointed out by others that God had placed Adam in a perfect place, the Garden of Eden, and had bountifully provided for his every need. In other words, the circumstances under which Adam was called to obey were the best possible circumstances, those which were most conducive to his actually obeying. In addition, no great effort was required for him to obey since the command given to him was very simple and clear. He only had to refrain from eating the fruit of one tree. Everything else was available to him. This again illustrates God's grace. The circumstances were certainly arranged to make it as easy as possible for Adam to obey, which makes his rebellion all that much more terrible. And I think we can reasonably conclude, based on the character of God, that Adam was the best possible representative we could have had. We shouldn't think that we would have done any better. I know I wouldn't want to make that claim. Nor would I. To do so would be to call God a liar, since he says that his ways are perfect, which must include his choice for our representative. And Boyce points out another important aspect relating to Adam's representative role. He says that, quote, The representative nature of Adam's sin is an example of God's grace toward us, for it is on the basis of that representation that God is able to save us, unquote. And he then quotes from Romans 5.19, where Paul wrote that, quote, Just as through the disobedience of the one man, which of course refers to Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, which refers to Jesus Christ, 
the many will be made righteous. That verse alone makes it pretty clear that God's relating to us through the mediation of a representative is ultimately very gracious. If it weren't for representation, there could be no salvation. If someone thinks it's unfair to be represented by Adam, then to be logically consistent, that person should also not want to be represented by Jesus Christ. But there is no salvation possible outside of Christ. And there's a lot more that could be said, but this is not properly part of the topic of anthropology, so I will defer further discussion along those lines to a later session. For now, let me just say one more thing about the cause of sin. Because Adam represented us, we share in his guilt and punishment. Part of that punishment consists in our being born with a sinful nature. The fact that Adam's sinful nature is passed on to all of his natural descendants explains the universal nature of sin. We all sin because we are, by nature, sinners. I've never met the person who is an exception to that rule. Nor have I, nor will either of us ever meet that person in this life, because there are no exceptions among Adam's natural descendants. We are all sinners. We do have a free will, meaning that we make real choices for which we can be justly held accountable. But as we discussed in session 84, our will chooses according to our desires. And because we have a sinful nature, our desires are sinful. We may do things, and many people often do, that are in accordance with God's law and are therefore good, but unregenerate men never do anything from a heart that desires to obey and please God. So even their outwardly good deeds are sinful, because as we're told in Proverbs 16 verse 2, all a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. The idea that we all inherit a sinful nature from Adam is not something that many people will readily accept. I'm well aware of that, but we're examining what the Bible teaches, which is truth, not what man will readily accept. And that completes what I wanted to say for now about the cause of sin. I do have one question on this topic that some of our listeners may be wondering about, though. Oh, what question is that? How is the sinful nature transmitted from parents to children? Since sin has to do with moral choices, it's clearly caused by our spirit, not our physical body. But where does our spirit come from? In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1, we read, This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him. But if God gives each new person his or her spirit, and the spirit is sinful, doesn't that make God the author of sin? Well, this question is interesting, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on it since the Bible does not give us enough information to form a firm answer. I would agree with your statement that if God creates each new spirit, that seems problematic since our spirits are sinful. But Wayne Grudem, for example, disagrees. He says that, quote, there does not seem to be any real theological difficulty in saying that God gives each child a human soul that has tendencies to sin that are similar to the tendencies found in the parents, unquote. Now, I disagree with his logic, but I wouldn't want to be dogmatic on the point. In one sense, of course, God is the one who makes us, not just our spirits, but our bodies as well. In Psalm 139, verse 13, the psalmist is speaking to God and says, quote, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb, unquote. 
I think this is speaking about the whole person, not just the spirit. But we all know how babies are made. In one sense, God can be said to do it, but he uses a human mother and father as secondary agents. And so Zechariah 12 verse 1 doesn't necessarily imply that the spirit is somehow different from the body in that regard. I certainly don't see any reason to draw that conclusion. But with regard to the larger question, there have been great theologians on both sides of the debate. Some, like Calvin, favored the idea that God created each spirit individually. That view is called creationism. Others, like Luther and Jonathan Edwards, favored the view that we inherit our spirit from our parents, which is called traditionism. And while I think traditionism is the most likely answer, I would never be dogmatic about this at all. Very well, let's not spend any more time on it then. All right, then let me continue with our outline of the doctrine of sin. The second component I mentioned is the nature of sin, and the biblical view is that man is totally depraved. And that terminology is, of course, easily misunderstood. Not only easily, but frequently misunderstood. So let's be clear about what we mean and what we don't mean. To say that man is totally depraved does not mean that he is as bad as he can possibly be. Rather, total depravity means that there is no part of man that is unaffected by sin. Every part of our being is corrupted, so perhaps a better term would be pervasive depravity. But we're stuck with the existing term because it's been in use for so long that we really can't avoid it. The really important point is that we not think we have some faculty, whether it be our reason, our will, or anything else, that is unaffected by sin. But I want to put off further discussion of total depravity until we have given our definition of sin. Which is the third component of the doctrine that you mentioned, so please go ahead. Let me start by quoting the answer to question 14 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That answer mentions two kinds of sin. First, it said sin is any want of conformity unto the law of God. This is often called a sin of omission, simply meaning that we didn't do something we were obligated to do. Second, it mentions transgression of the law of God, which is often called a sin of commission. In other words, we do something that we are forbidden to do. In both cases, this definition makes it clear that it's the law of God that establishes what is and is not sin. And all sin can be seen at its core as being rebellion against God's rule. That's exactly right. At the end of the day, every sin, no matter how small, is a way of saying to God that you are independent and do not need to come under his rule. Very well. What about the laws that men make? We should almost always obey them. The laws of God are, of course, more important and trump the laws made by men, But so long as the laws made by God's delegated authorities are proper, it would be sin to violate them. Paul tells us in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, that, quote, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. When you say those laws must be quote-unquote proper, do you mean they must be fully consistent with the Word of God, or do you just mean that they must not directly contradict the Word of God by commanding us to sin? 
Well, let me first say that we absolutely must not obey any law of men that commands us to sin. In Acts chapter 5, we read about the apostles being arrested for preaching the gospel. They were put in jail overnight to await their appearing before the Jewish ruling council of elders called the Sanhedrin. But during the night, an angel of the Lord set them free and commanded them to go to the temple courts and preach the gospel. So at daybreak, the apostles obeyed. Which, of course, didn't sit well with the Sanhedrin. (laughs) No, it didn't sit well at all. The apostles were again arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. In Acts 5, verse 28, we're told that the high priest said to them, quote, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And by this reference to this man's blood, they were, of course, referring to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Exactly. In any event, we read the apostles' response in Acts 5, verse 29. They said, quote, We must obey God rather than men. This is a very simple concept, but potentially with very serious implications. We've spoken at length about God's delegated authorities in the state, church, and home in sessions 28 through 33. God expects us to respectfully obey all legitimate authorities. But if they tell us to sin, they are no longer exercising legitimate authority because God has not given any delegated authority the right to sin or to command others to sin. And it's also possible for them to overstep the bounds of their delegated authority, in which case we have the right, but certainly no obligation, to disobey. Now obviously, refusing to obey authority, even if you do it respectfully, can be costly. Certainly can, if, for example, we think about a German soldier in World War II being commanded to help in one of the extermination camps, it's easy to see that failure to obey that order would most likely cost him his life. That's clearly a very extreme and unusual example, but nonetheless true. If you were ordered to kill innocent people, that would be an order you would have to refuse, even if it cost you your life. But there are much less extreme examples that come up far more frequently, and I might add, pose far more difficult questions. Can you give some examples? Absolutely. Consider being a medical doctor in our current society. Suppose you have a patient come in for an examination, and you find that he has a medical problem directly caused by homosexual behavior. If you're a Christian doctor, you might feel obliged to explain to the man that his medical problem is caused by his sinful behavior, and that the best thing for him to do is to stop that behavior. But that would get you in a lot of trouble with most medical groups, and might even cost you your job if you did it repeatedly. Yeah, that could definitely be a very complex situation. And here is where I would have to say that each individual Christian has to decide for him or herself. As far as I can see, it would not be a clear sin to just treat the person and say nothing. Or perhaps you could just explain how the particular behavior caused the problem and suggest that he changes behavior without making any statements about it being sin. Yeah, doctors certainly tell people, for example, that they would be better off if they stopped smoking or lost weight or got more exercise. Yeah, they do that all the time. But those behaviors aren't as politically charged in our society. And unless the doctor came across as insufferably condescending or judgmental, it's hard to imagine such advice causing any trouble. In any event, I think each Christian has to make decisions about these difficult questions on his own. They can and should get counsel, if possible, from their elders to help them make a decision that honors God. And that brings us right back to the idea that it's God to whom we are ultimately accountable. That is the most important point. 
God is the one who defines sin, not man. He has delegated to the state, the church, and the family the authority to make other laws and rules as necessary to regulate the orderly functioning of the state, church, and home, and Christians are obligated to obey those man-made laws almost always. And those laws can change. Different countries, states, churches, and homes have different laws and rules, but they can still all be proper and binding on Christians. And such delegated authority, unless abused, is beneficial to mankind in general and to God's church in particular. Oh, it certainly is. Christians would not be free to worship, live their lives for God's glory, and tell others about Christ if they lived in the midst of anarchy. The orderly operation of the state, church, and home are absolutely necessary. And if we go back to the apostles again, who lived under Roman rule, we have an example of Christians living under a government that was, at times, very hostile to them. Yeah, extremely hostile at times. And yet in Romans 13, verse 5, Paul said that, quote, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, unquote. And in verse 7, he specifically told us to pay taxes, which were extremely unpopular at that time. Israel was under foreign rule. I think taxes are unpopular anytime, anywhere. And we could note that Paul was in agreement with Jesus on that point. Jesus also famously told the people to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's in Matthew chapter 12, verse 21. Exactly. We're to keep the order straight. God is the supreme ruler, but we must obey all delegated authorities unless doing so requires us to disobey God. If we disobey an earthly authority, the worst thing that can happen to us is that we can be killed. But Jesus told us in Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, we're out of time, so let me remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at what does the word say dot org and we'll respond as best we can you've been listening to what does the word say brought to you by grace and glory media and i'm mark roby in our next session dr spencer will continue to examine biblical anthropology and we hope you'll join us the session you heard today is available along with all other sessions in the archive on our website at what does the word say.org we also have a free book available to you entitled good news for all people written by reverend pg matthew founder and senior minister of grace valley christian center to request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation go to what does the word say.org